90% of the time, it didn't go necessarily how I wanted it to go. (laughs) But 10% of the time it did. And I think sometimes I look back and think, actually, those were key moments. And and, and as you know, failure is massive Mm. uh, in everyone's life. And you only get those bits every now and again. And I I used to regret being that 90% sometimes because some of the reactions. But now I think, nah. I'm glad I did it because that 10% worked. Today I'm talking with Christine Williamson. She runs a consultancy firm called Duty of Care International and has spent about 20 years in human resources management in the aid world. Now this is a famously difficult area. The aid sector puts large numbers of people into very tough operating environments with a tiny fraction of the resources that are put behind diplomatic or military staff. The sector is built on short-term funding contracts, which poses enormous difficulties for professionalization and workforce planning. Moreover, all of this has to grapple with a range of equity issues that come when you ship large numbers of expatriate staff into places with weak regulatory oversight and precarious local labor markets. So a lot to cover. And Christine is someone who brings a very principles-based approach to an area that can be very process-focused. We get into how organizations can enable the physical and psychological health of their staff, what longevity in the sector looks like, and how people can keep their head over time. What can be done, what can really be done about abuse issues and safeguarding, including the efficacy of some of the initiatives we've seen over the last few years? This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. All right. Well, firstly, thanks for doing this. Um, We are in Clapham, actually, (laughs) unusually for this series in London. Uh, I usually start these in the same place. Um, if you were meeting someone socially, uh, friend of a friend, dinner, how do you explain what you do for a living? Sure. Um, so I, I think I start by saying I work in the humanitarian and development sector mm-hmm. and have been for 20 years. That then gives them a sort of a background because if you just dive in and say, oh, I've worked in Africa and I do this, they're like, what? Um, so I also tell them I'm a, I am an HR professional, mm-hmm. um, but I've worked with different charities, NGOs and organizations, but mostly in aid, as an aid worker, uh, working in the HQ and overseas. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's really where I start. Mm. And that then gets me to that conversation about, well, wh- wh- where's duty of care come into it? Mm. Um, so I now run duty of care international. Mm-hmm. And in that, I support the NGOs, the federations, the UN, and those working in the sector. So we're talking businesses as well. Um, the, the duty of care street comes, I don't think there's a huge jump, actually, between being in HR and having this injustice streak mm. and then a little bit of a law background as well. So I, I always was looking for ways to make sure that we were looking after staff. And then the phrase duty of care, has it's just built up over time. And um, I think I started to use it around 2006. I wrote an article um, with People in Aid then. Um, and since then, I've just been trying my best to stick my head out the parapet and keep uh, being that voice, actually, and keep using it as a pet project, really, mm-hmm. alongside my jobs mm-hmm. uh, in HR. Because, as you know, working in charity, you, you, you do your job, but also if you have a passion for something, you probably need to do that on the side or you're doing it within your work. Um, so it's just grown really with time mm. and I was trying to bring it into everything I did from basic policy to to writing a blog which led to you know working with the university and lecturing for them on it and it, it, it just you've just got to take opportunities. Mm. How did you get your start in the sector what were the what were the first steps for you? Yeah so um, it, it, it's it started the, the actual sector was a phone call Mm. It wasn't, it was just, and it wasn't even a job offer. Mm. It was me phoning up World Vision mm. in Milton Keynes and saying, do you need somebody? I've got this, I've got that. I've studied this. Um, 
I had no charity experience whatsoever. I'd come from corporate and run a couple of businesses mm. and studied business mm. and a bit of law. <laughs> and they took the chance mm. and they took me on for a year. And what that did do, not only did it expose me, obviously, to writing policy in HR, but I was watching what was going on within the organization. And I was watching these teams go overseas and I was really excited about it. Mm. Um because I was been reading about it. I'd lived in quite a poor area in America for a very long time. So I was exposed to a lot of those sorts of things and didn't like it. I didn't think it was fair. And um, and then all of a sudden a job came up in London. You're not going to believe this. It was a job looking for someone who'd written policy for a year with a finance background. Mm. I think there was only two people who replied. And that's where it was. And, that, and you won. And I won it. And it was an international role. So, right. And, then in that, and that was with Tear Fund. And right. it just, they, that's where I grew up in mm. Tear Fund. Seven years, just. So that's how I got in. And I'll be honest, I mean, I, I was, whilst I was at uni, I was working part time for a big corporate. Mm. And um, I, I became really good friends with the HR director there. I mean, I was only an administrator, but mm. it's because we both loved rugby and he was a Bath supporter and I was a Leicester supporter. This might turn people off. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a strong view on this one. <laughs> no, but um, I am... And we became friends. Right. And I used to have long chats with him about HR and then he helped me mm-hmm. find roles. Mm. So I, I got the right help at the right time. Mm. Um, and those little things... Those mm. little questions make the biggest difference. So the answers I got were brilliant. So, yeah. Mm. Um, I went on a learning course with Tear Fund about 15 years ago. You know, the typical one where you write down where you want to be in 10 years' time. Mm-hmm. And I found it the other day, oh, yeah. 10 years ago. And it said, I want to eventually work for myself in a technical area that adds value. Okay. Now, I can't remember writing that, but clearly that's a theme that's come through for me. Um, And when it means add value, I think really what it talks about is justice. I have this justice streak. It's really important um, that that, that I'm trying to look at injustice in the way of a, or look through the lens of duty of care at injustice. We call it a breach, but it's injustice really. And that's, that's something that's inherent in me. I can't say where that came from, but maybe maybe it was my maybe it was that travel I did mm. when I was young and I saw those I just saw what I saw um mm. in the States mm. and uh, I saw people being treated very unfairly and racism and so on. And I, I just thought, no, that's not that's not how it should be. Mm. So I, I just I don't know. Where it's come from. No, it's, I, but I do read a lot. <laughs> it's it's a it is it's a critical thing, right? I mean, you you don't last in this sector without some internal streak. <laughs> you know, what, whatever wherever it comes from, it's got to be there, or you're not going to last. Yeah, no, exactly. No, and in, I think one of the things I did, um, I'm not sure it was necessarily. I needed to do it. I'm not sure I should have done it for so long, but I did take a breather. Mm. But I could because I had the transferable skills to do that. Not everyone has that. Yeah. Um, but there is something around taking a breather, just getting some perspective. Because if you start spiraling, you're right, you aren't going to come across very well either. Um, mm. And you're just going to upset people with your ideas and your opinions because they're going to come across negatively. And that is of no use to anyone. So um, I think one of the biggest learning points from my cynical breather was I needed to turn that around mm. so that anything I was frustrated and I needed to make sure it came across as, uh, instead of what does an unhealthy organisation look like, what does a healthy one look like? Mm. Let's, let's look at that. Let's look at what we really, where we want to go and what we want to be doing. And that idea or that conviction that... Uh, the sector needs to take better care of its people. Can you elaborate a little on on what that looked like? I mean, what were the sort of early experiences? And you've you've worked in a number of, of different organisations. Um, so without throwing anyone under the bus, yeah. like what uh, what fueled that uh, idea that something was was wrong or could could at least be improved? Yeah, again, coming from the injustice or the mm. fairness side. So. 
I think when you're exposed to different environments, um, you start to see how people are treated in one environment compared to another. Mm -hmm. And I think we can all, you know, there's not, I'm not saying anything controversial here, but we, we, it started with the differences between expatriate staff and national or local staff. And it was so obvious to me because... Um, the NGO I was working with at the time worked through partners, mm -hmm. and it, it, that was instilled in me that we went through the, the local partner. And so when we arrived as a team, we worked alongside the partner, mm -hmm. and it was very evident of the differences. Some were inevitable, mm -hmm. but some were not. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, as a result, I wrote, I wrote a guide, a book um, on how to look after your staff as a local NGO, at low cost. If you didn't have an HR resource, how do you do it? So the organization at the time supported me in writing that book, and that's out there. That went out in 2008. And so there was something that was always with me. Um, five years on, working for people in aid, working for different organizations, it was clear that those sorts of practices needed to be strengthened. They needed to be looked at. And they were more tweaks than anything else. And that actually is what's so frustrating is mm. it's not huge leaps of cost. It's not. It's mm. just tweaks to and thinking and giving thought to how you treat your staff. And as we know, um, you know, our staff on the ground, uh, they're the ones exposed to um, all the dysfunctions and efficiencies of our work mm. they're the ones that have to think on their feet mm. they're the ones that actually do have to cut corners mm. in order to do their work the right corners we need to be thinking more practically mm -hmm. about some of the decisions we make and how they impact those that we're working with mm -hmm. so one example is something that we did in haiti so we're all camping and uh one of, as we know, when you're introducing people into the organization that have never met the organization before is, well, how do you embed them? How do you help them understand? And so there was no cutting corner on the induction. And I don't mean induction sitting in a room. We literally were in a field. And um, so together, there was about 12 of us and we were bringing new staff in, sitting them around, walking around the camp, going through our values and helping them understand how and why we do what we do. There's no cutting corners on that. That is added value. That makes people feel I belong to something and that's important. So mm -hmm. when I say improving practices for local staff, again, I'm not saying it costs money mm. at all. And um, It's these simple things that we can do to make people feel valued. Where does duty of care come into that? Well, I think it's a, it's a good starting point to help people feel valued because mm. if they don't, things can escalate into different ways, which are necessarily good and then suddenly you've got this uh, cycle of an environment that's not very healthy mm. so for people who come into the aid sector i think one of the things that they struggle with or they have to adapt to is the idiosyncratic or unique way let's say in which human resources tends to be handled uh, and it does look very different i think to nearly every other sector that I'm familiar with. It um, tends to be short-term, revolving contracts, very high turnover, uh, no career path or progression per se, a lot of churn between different organizations and different countries, and it's sort of left up to people to some extent to manage their own <laughs> destinies and find a, a path that, that makes sense. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on how uh, this this uh, more sort of um, supportive or, or nurturing, if that's not too strong a word, culture you're describing? What would that look like in this sector? What what would have to change for that to become the mm. the new way of doing things? Yeah, those are the sorts of questions we used to get from national staff. You mm. know, so how how do I progress? You know, why is it? that this expat comes in and leaves after six months? How come there's such a rotation of manager? Mm. Um, and uh, the answer's in that question. Um, so how do we keep people longer? Mm. Well, who are the people that are going to stay around? Mm. Who are the people that we need to give the skills, bring competence to, to run our programs in the most effective way? It's those that are in the community, those that are living there. And that's, to me, the answer mm. is 
making sure that we're not flying in people who are completely alienated out of their own culture. They're expected to come in and do a good job. Mm. I mean, we're setting that setting them up for a fall as well. So I'm not averse to the odd expat coming in and bringing expertise at all. Mm. Um, but I do think they need to come in with the attitude of making themselves redundant. They're not there to um, give us, you know, to come, do something and leave. They need to leave something behind. Mm. And I think we need to be much better mm. at that. Personally, uh, when I went into Indonesia, it was always in the back of my mind as the HR manager mm. to to bring on a couple of HR people um, and bring them up to the point where I can leave and they carry on. That has to be how we work. Um, and I would say that's... That's the best way I can suggest. It's very simple, I know, but it is the best in any way I can think of. Is there a, a positive example or a success story? I mean, what, what have there been some highlights over those 20 years where you feel like that's been done effectively? Um, I, I Honestly, very few and far between. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, uh, okay, so we've got a situation where if you're in the humanitarian situation you you are meant to be running a program that does initially come to an end and we do talk about exit strategy what i'd like to think is that those that were working in our program had been trained and were leaving with more than they had before there's a lot of uh, competition Mm-hmm. Uh, you know this yourself when when you go into a, a conflict or a, a disaster situation everyone arrives everyone's looking for the same people and you have and we do hear stories about some organizations who pay a lot more than somebody else will be probably hiring very skilled people to do very junior roles um, and that is something we we really need to look at mm-hmm. um, because if we're sort of um, draining the resources of the region and, and, and actually hindering the recovery because we're taking all the resources and using them in a very ineffective way, then I think we've got to question ourselves there. How we do that? The collaboration. Mm. Um, and it's not just the NGOs. I'm talking about the UN as well. But mm. it's a huge uh, undertaking to think about how we can utilize people more effectively mm. in a disaster situation. We only have a small pool of people to pull from um, when we all arrive. So, yeah, yeah. something to think about. Well, it is, it is very striking in, in places like um, Eastern Congo or uh, Darfur increasingly or um, I think South Sudan in an emerging way. You've had a sustained humanitarian presence for decades, for as long as you've been in the sector, longer than you've been in the sector, certainly longer than I've been in the sector. Uh, It is striking how little systematic development of the workforce there's been. It's this same model of short-term revolving contracts for local staff, and I'm using air quotes for (laughs) abundance of clarity, and it it does seem like there isn't much of a... Mm. Uh, a long-term impact uh, or a, even a long-term plan in terms of how that model of engaging national experts should have changed over time. Exactly. I agree. Um, I mean, I, I'm still baffled um, mm. why we are giving fixed-term contracts to national staff, even if they are tied to a project that has a beginning and an end, because... Um, most countries actually have laws about recurring contracts. Um, certainly uh, in Europe, they do. <laughs> you know, after two years, you have the same rights as anybody else on a permanent contract. So with national staff, I'm, I get baffled when we do these recurring one-year contracts for three, four, and five years. It makes no sense to me. What, um, it just gives them, it gives them no security. I mean, national staff will tell you they, they're unable to um, uh, get rent, uh, they're, sorry, they're able to rent property because they haven't got that secure role. They it, it disenables them to do so many things when they haven't got security behind them. And yet, there are so many ways that you can build into your contract um, release clauses and redundancy clauses due to funding. I mean, 
why do that? Why are we doing that to national staff? I, I don't want to even call them local staff, just staff working in... Those, just staff is so, fine, yeah. Just staff. Uh, our staff working in their own countries. <laughs> so um, for me, I talked earlier about tweaks. Mm. That to me is a tweak. In mm. fact, I would even say it saves you money. Mm. Um, in the long run, if you look at the different ways, you can use benefits around that. So, yeah, that's my mm. strong feeling on... Those cyclical mm. contracts. <laughs> so, this is one aspect: the uh, sort of professional development, um, job security, job satisfaction, uh, investment in people, sort of aspect. Um, I guess there are a couple of other strands that you would focus on. Can you walk me through some of the other? big challenges you would run into when you were advising an organization on this or in your, your operational experience? What are the other dossiers here? Mm. Well, um, I mean, let's use safeguarding mm -hmm. as an example. I find that when I talk to organizations or I'm doing webinars or so-and-so and I start talking about the basics mm -hmm. of HR, you know, the stuff that we really should have in place that would actually be 80% of the solution, to be honest. Um, I kind of, I think there's some like eye rolling. Um, I, I, you know, I didn't want to talk about job descriptions with you or reference collection. And I'm thinking, but actually, <laughs> um, sometimes it's the small stuff or the simple stuff that's just not done very, or the basics, it's not done very well. Reference collection. Mm -hmm. If we did what we were supposed to do, if we were worth our salt in just the basics on collecting references, and I don't just mean sending a piece of paper and getting something back with a few ticks on, I mean actually picking up the phone and chatting to the most recent line manager of that person that you're trying to hire and doing that two or three times and asking some great questions. And there are lots of questions you can ask. This is where I feel... We are not really thinking about it as well as we can. And when I hear that perhaps we're going to have this register mm. where we might have people who have been, I'm not, I don't know if it's blacklisted or it's people that we have concerns about, that to me is taking the skill out of HR mm. and it's saying, We'll look after it because, you know, NGOs don't, aren't able to do it. And actually, we've got law and practice and guidance about how we should do it. And it doesn't take long. Look, I was in Haiti and um, I remember a comment made at the summit saying, well, it's very difficult to do in a humanitarian situation. Well, I argue that. I argue that completely because um, I spent one day with five temporary staff helping me translate references and make phone calls and get the right people. And as a result, we did drop about a third of the candidates because we got the references in. But you have to do it. Mm. And something I think we just need to be aware of, um, are we de-skilling HR mm. by doing this? When actually, well, why don't we just upskill or give them a bit more resource mm. to do this? So there you go. I'm sticking my head out a bit here on the parapet. but <laughs> Well, the, the, the incident that triggered the current sort of wave of attention to safeguarding was uh, an Oxfam contract employee in Haiti uh, engaged in sexual exploitation and abuse. And from everything I understand, uh, this guy was a known quantity, like the most basic mm. diligence in reference checking would have turned this up very quickly. And it just wasn't, it wasn't done because the recruitment and onboarding process wasn't given the attention mm. and priority that it should have been. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. not to put too fine a point on it, it was just they weren't doing the core processes mm. in the way they should have been done. Yeah, and well, let's let's give the benefit of the doubt. Let's yeah. say they let's say an organisation uh, is unable to get the reference because mm. there is a policy in some parts of our you know business uh, world unfortunately that says we don't provide references we just tell you they worked here from here to here and that's that yeah. well for me that's not good enough if someone came back with that i'd be looking for another reference mm -hmm. and i would be i would not be satisfied until i'd got two references particularly for senior stuff i mean i can't emphasize enough how important it is particularly for senior staff and staff working with 
vulnerable populations, of course. Um, and it is on the onus of the candidate to provide you with references that you can follow up on. So don't stop there. Then, of course, we've got the, the whole sense of just giving references that aren't true. Mm-hmm. Um, legally, and this is a duty of care, and it's all over the ACAS website, you are meant to give factual references. We need to upskill ourselves on how we deal with references and not be fearful of providing them and mm. asking for them. Mm. That's the place we need to get to. That's good practice. Let's not remove that and give it to somebody else and then literally de-skill ourselves in our own organization. Um, Indeed. Well, the, the, the flip side or the complementary way of looking at it from safeguarding is are you cultivating and developing people who can deliver in these very complex and challenging mm. environments? And if you can't even ascertain that they're not in this case, serial abusers of children, um, how on earth are you confident that they are going to be able to deliver uh, on a difficult job description in a difficult environment? Mm. So it it does seem like if you can't do that sort of basic compliance hygiene requirement type thing to keep out the the real sort of bad apples, how on earth are you going to have a a skilled and motivated Mm. workforce? Mm. Absolutely. I mean... Again, um, and this is, I am not, you know, let's not talk about Oxfam because I think everyone suffers from this, but there is a a lack of um, resource. You Mm. know, sometimes you're in a situation where you're desperate for people and you therefore cut a corner. Mm -hmm. And I've talked about cutting corners, but you cut the right ones. I, this is not a corner to cut. And, And actually, I do also want to emphasize that actually a lot of the people are already in your organization. Mm. And the question I have is, the environment around them that they are working in, how does that trigger something? You know, are we creating our own people who are sort of left, <laughs> left to their own devices under pressure, do bad things or start, you know, there's conduct issues. Um, and that's where I come to the duty of care aspect. It's not just one thing. You've got to look at the whole groundwork that you're working on. Is it is it a healthy environment? Mm. What does it mean to have a healthy environment? What does a healthy organisation look like? We we always look at it from the negative, but let's look at it from the positive. Um, people feel absolutely um, confident in raising a concern. Mm-hmm. That's what a healthy organization looks like. They're not in fear of a, of a repercussion from raising a concern. They're not in fear of, you know, of what might happen to them or the stigma attached to them or being listened to or that it won't be dealt with. That's where you want to get to. So you need to figure out in your organization how you're going to do it. And mm. it may be different depending on who you are because you will all have great things about your organization, but you're always going to have things that aren't quite so good. And often they're cultural, so it is not an easy task. Uh, culture is all about this is how it's done around here, and that needs to change. So, you know, you're mm. going to get a bit of backlash, I'm afraid. And again, this is where you stick your head out the parapet, which is what I often do. Um, and <laughs> I'm trying not to have regrets about that. But, yeah, you, you, someone needs to stand up for this, and it doesn't matter who it is as long as somebody does. Um, and I come back to this uh, the the power in change comes from a diversity of voices. It's not, um, it can't just be one or two people. It can't be someone in HR. It can't be someone in security. It can't be a one manager who's fighting this cause. It's got to be a collective, and it really needs to come from the top. Do people tend to come to you thinking of this more in terms of risks or in terms of value? Uh, is it coming from a place of fear of consequences or aspirations to do better? Well, I'm hesitating with the answer because um, I think, let's be honest, it's about risk. Mm-hmm. But they want to bring their values in. Yeah. There's no question that most of the organisations I work with have are values-based, yeah. you know. Um, but they've almost, they've moved away from it into the reason we're here is because we see it as a risk. No, and do you know what? That's okay because mm-hmm. we're here, you know. <laughs> it doesn't matter how we got here. 
I did an exercise with one NGO and I was working for them at the time around bullying and harassment. Now, we knew that we weren't promoting our values Mm -hmm. enough in the induction, but we did need to address um, some of the behaviours around that. In a corporate way, it was a very stressful environment. People react under pressure. We needed to look at that. So instead of embarking on two types of training, what you do is you're like, well, actually, this is an opportunity to embed our values and use this as a platform, bring your values in, bring your mission in all the time. Make sure people know why they work for the organization, where it comes from. I know these are the basics. Mm. And again, I'm fearful people are rolling their eyes, but I I just feel we forget that sometimes. Well, I I was very struck by your rhetorical question, what what does a healthy environment look like a healthy work environment and i would submit that a lot of humanitarian organizations and a lot of uh i think peace and security focused organizations do not look like a healthy work environment Mm. um they're high stress due to the environment that's unavoidable to some extent but they're also high stress because of contract precarity because of lack of um uh, psychosocial support mm. because of lack of any clear career trajectory uh, for a lot of reasons, which uh, can be mitigated, I think. Well, there's a lot of scope to do better than we have been doing. When we talk about professionalization of the sector, um, the standards can be, or the, the norm, the expectation can be shockingly low. Mm. In some cases, in my experience. I mean, some organizations are better than others, but it does feel like there are a lot of pieces of that healthy work environment, which we do not do very well on. No, no. And duty of care has two elements to it. It's Mm. the physical safety Mm. and the psychological safety of your staff. And I think we've been looking at the physical safety for years. I Mm. think we can honestly say we're quite good at that. We've got our insurance in place. We know how to evacuate somebody. Um, We have security procedures. But when it comes to our mental health, I think we've been really behind the curve on that. Now, that is changing. Mm. It really is changing. And we're doing so much work around mental health. And it all starts with removing the stigma in the first place, not just from the person wanting to report they may have an issue, they're struggling, they're overworked, they're tired. I mean, dare I say, if if you are self-aware enough to spot the signs of burnout, I mean, all of that stuff. You would like to think you can go to your manager with that. And this is where I come to the manager thing. Um, I truly believe we need to equip our managers more with um, the competencies to spot signs of issues regarding their staff and mental health. Um, It's not for them to resolve them. Mm. It's for them to spot the signs, be the ears, the eyes, and spot it and direct them to support if needed. And then the the organisation should have that support and resource in place. What we're finding is that people don't access the resource that's provided. Mm. There are so many employee assistance programmes and counselling programmes that organisations have, and that is essentially a tick box exercise. You speak to any lawyer and they'll tell you that's probably the biggest duty of care thing you can do practically, have one of those in place. So my argument is, how well is that service being used? Is it being used and why isn't it being used? And are you really working with that service to understand that? Mm. When when I spoke to staff in one organisation I was working with, they just don't want to use it. Um, There's a stigma around it. Mm -hmm. Um, Managers aren't encouraging the use of it. It's seen as a Oh, have you spoken to the counsellor? You know, everything escalates to that <laughs> before mm. there are steps in between. Um, and so oh, we just need to help our managers with that. I'm not saying managers are incompetent. I think that they, we have loaded their shoulders so much with too much stuff. But I do think we can be better at helping them do that. Um, HR could be better at working with the managers on it. There is something around that of spotting signs earlier on. That's the prevention strategy prevention better than cure mm-hmm. strategy so um the mental health side is a really interesting one because it's a gray area it's not something you can see mm-hmm. you know in somebody and when you it comes to duty of care 
And if we're talking about this from a legal perspective, if you end up in court due to a stress-related situation, they will be looking at ways that you could have prevented it getting worse, even if it wasn't your fault as an organization that they had it, you know, because here's another thing to think about. Everyone you hire who's experienced doesn't come (laughs) fresh. (laughs) They come with something. They come with baggage. They come with all that experience and burnout and tiredness. And that's that's good people you know these are the good people we're speaking as a fresh-faced optimist <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about no baggage <laughs> whatsoever oh no so um yeah so exactly yeah. so what 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 duty of care is about is this breach thing and this mm-hmm. negligence thing and, and the minute you know someone has something or is struggling with something and even if they've admitted to it you have a responsibility to do something about it and the manager is key in this process mm. and I am going to stick my head out a little bit more because I think this is really important for people to know, is that managers can get sued Mm. separately to the organisation. So it's really important that the organisation is supporting the manager and the manager understands what it's supposed to be doing. Is that that still a little bit reactive though? Um, It feels like if people are working in particularly high-stress environments, presumably reasonable measures would include building in uh, reasonable measures to to mitigate that, to, mm. to get ahead of that rather mm. than waiting for someone to develop signs of a stress disorder. Um, has there, are we there yet? I mean, is, is, is the practice heading in that direction or are we still thinking a bit more uh, in terms of response rather than prevention? You know, when you said, what does a healthy organisation mm. look like? Um, what I'd like to see is more locally available services to staff Mm. um, so that they're not having to pick up the phone to a stranger Mm. online digitally. Mm. Um, So what we did in Haiti and actually um, in Indonesia is I looked for a local, albeit an NGO, it had to be, obviously because of the infrastructure at the time, but ways of which I could tap into support from them locally instead of having to phone up my international rescue (laughs) service who would have a nurse on the end of the phone advising that you need to get these things and you know if if, I had an incident in Darfur um I got heat stroke Mm -hmm. and I needed antihistamines that's all I needed Mm -hmm. I rang up because it was the middle of the night and I was in the middle of nowhere and I'd come out in blotches I phoned up naturally the rest of this number and they said you needed to get evacuated <laughs> it was almost like pressing the nuclear button and I was like what <laughs> and, and I said are you sure about that I said, yeah. <laughs> and they said well actually no if you've got some antihistamine so the worst thing I had to do was wake up my colleague to ask her where the medical box was to see if we did and we did mm. and that was fine but this is an example of why people don't use the services and I think we need to be a little bit more um well, is it training or a little bit more helpful in the way we describe mm. how things can escalate? And so I think it's okay to go to phase one with a bit of stress mm-hmm. and so and so. But I think it's okay, now you're in that. What, what do I have access to at these different stages? And ideally, if you've got something more local um, to tap into, that would be better. Mm. Ideally, your team should be your – we should be a little bit more aware of our how we can be more – supportive mm-hmm. in terms of our peers and maybe maybe having a few tools ourselves I mean me I just spoke to a psychologist um once about uh how how can I support someone who's been in an incident over the phone and they said oh it's, it's, there's so many things you can do there mm. are the, the three or four questions that you need to ask and one is about being available the other is about I'll call you in the morning. The other is, who are you with now? Um, can you get someone to be with you? You know, some of these questions are so simple. Mm. make the biggest difference to recovery. Mm. And I think this is what we need to be thinking about, is how do we prevent it getting worse? I do want to give you an example of an extreme situation um, um, in a sexual violence context mm-hmm. where the organisation's response um, to the incident harmed the person more than the incident over time than the incident itself. It was that that harmed them because of the lack of empathy, the lack of support, and so on. So, mm. 
That is a massive breach in duty of care. And you can see how that could have been prevented. Viewed in longer term perspective, if people are doing this for 10, 15, 20 years in um, very difficult or high threat environments, or even ones with just a very difficult sort of day-to-day living, which creates stress in its own way. If they're living in these kind of environments for 15, 20 years, inevitably, uh, these things are going to accumulate, right? There's going to be a certain number of acute incidents over that time, and there's going to be a certain amount of background stress. Is it sustainable? Is it uh, viable for people, you know, from a duty of care perspective or just sort of from a general sort of empathetic person perspective? Um, is it is it sustainable for people to be doing this over that length of time? Can that be part of the model? Should that be part of the, the business model of the sector? Uh, everything's viable if it's <laughs> done in the right way. Um, I mean, I I think there are ways of looking after yourself Mm. and supporting your staff as well that allows that longevity. Mm -hmm. And we we know in the expat world, we've got R&R, we've got annual leave, we've got all sorts of breaks. You don't have those things. You're a a consultant. (laughs) Not anymore. No, (laughs) exactly. I don't. Um, That's true, actually. I haven't thought about that. Um, Yeah, so... You know, so how it was interesting in Indonesia, actually, because we had three categories of staff in Indonesia. We had, because you're on islands, you're bringing in staff from other islands. You call them national staff and you'd have your local staff and you have your expats. And suddenly you've got three sets of terms and conditions and leave and support that Mm. you're looking at. And one of the bugbears was that everyone's getting different types of leave. Mm -hmm. And we somehow needed, and I just, I stepped back and thought, if I'm honest and I'm really being kind of like candid here, there are three things that staff worry about and mm-hmm. it's money, mm-hmm. leave, and in these situations, accommodation. Mm-hmm. If you get those three right, I'm not saying everything else is fine. I'm just saying get those three right. You've sort of covered the real key areas. And if they're all different, which they were, you've got a problem, actually. So we had to align it. So I was, I in the end, I started giving national staff home leave. Mm-hmm. Um, whilst they didn't need accommodation expenses, they were going home, I would give them their flights and I would give them some time. And then we had to look at how we dealt with the local staff. It was really difficult because they were going home every night, very different situations. So we just, that they did not get R&R and home leave. And that was a problem. I'm not saying I've got the answer. Mm. But I think we have to step back and go, well, who needs what? Longevity-wise, you've got to look after all your staff. And if you're putting them into a pressured environment, you need ways of helping them switch off. Mm. I would say switching off is, is probably one of the key things. That's one of the things I learned about mm. coming home. Can I switch off? I don't necessarily need counselling all the time. I might. It'd be nice to have a debrief and a chat with the manager, definitely. But actually... I just need a place where I can switch off. Mm. <laughs> it's often not available, though. No, no absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, and that's something, if you asked me about longevity, I think that's how you maybe build it in. But other than that, I, I don't really have the answers. You know, a lot of people sort of are in the sector for a certain amount of time and then they leave mm. and take a huge amount of knowledge with them, which is a shame. But, um, but I understand why they mm. do leave. Well, I think... I mean, you have organizations where 90% of staff statistically will be in or at the point of delivery, um, as, as it should be. Uh, but that does mean that there's no real transition out of that, you know, as you acquire family responsibilities, as your <laughs> health problems accumulate, et cetera, et cetera. There, you know, there isn't really anywhere else to go. You have to sort of get out of the sector. Uh, and I know a lot of people who after sort of 10, 15 years find themselves in this situation that there isn't really a logical place for them to go. There's sort of a few policy jobs which there's a lot of competition for and the people who are in them don't necessarily even really like them, but uh, there just aren't many options. There isn't a sort of a clear next step for people i think yeah uh and it's it's hugely problematic um because mm. you do you do lose 
So much institutional memory. You do, you do. And I, that's, that's my principle and argument all along. Mm. Why, why the closer the people are to the community and the region that they're working, the less of a shock it's going to be to work in that region the chances are they might be able to lead a, a relatively normal life you know mm. they'll be able to have a family and, and grow in the organization and so on and so on i mean yes we talk about humanitarian programs being finite you mm-hmm. know but let's be honest we use the sudan example <laughs> we've been calling that humanitarian for the last 20 30 years um so yep. let's let's call it something else eh? Yeah, and I, I was talking to someone in a previous um, interview about this. Uh, to the coming back to this issue, it comes back to this issue of um, uh, career trajectory or, or career planning. Is that there isn't necessarily a transferable set of skills? I think um, for some people there is, but for a lot of people they find it extremely difficult to switch sectors. Um, they get adapted to the operating environment, they get adapted to the way things are done in the aid sector, and they have a set of skills that is very specifically tailored to the aid sector, which a lot of people have told me that they tend to feel kind of trapped when they get to sort of mid-career and that they don't have many options. Is this something that we should be grappling with a bit better in the sector or is there some positive practice out there that you're aware of that could be drawn upon well it depends what you're doing Hmm. um i hr finance some of those roles that you see in every organization in probably every business around the world mm. they do have transferable skills the the downside of that is the trust mm. in dif- between the sectors so me jumping from the charity sector into the corporate would be there would be a mistrust there mm. i'd probably have to go in at a lower and a lower seniority and work my way back up again mm. um, and that is with very much obvious transferable skills. Mm. So if you're if you have very narrow NGO gender based violence or whatever <laughs> skills, um, then yes, there is a huge area there in terms of is that watch the niche you're going into. What we are seeing now though, which is positive, is that we're seeing much more than NGO in UN in our sector. So we've got many more businesses who are being funded, actually, by DFID and USAID um, coming into the sector, operating as businesses. and So another set of skills are coming in Mm. who therefore will understand our sector a lot better and therefore you have got more transfer in those terms as well. uh, There are a lot of good, big organisations that, do have career pathing and do do talent management programs very well. But I'd say on the whole, it, the only person that's going to be looking after your career is you. And it's having those mentors around you and being very open and looking around about what where is it I am going to be going in the next three or four years. You should never stop asking yourself that. Um, and my advice is always have people around you, some sound people around you that can help you um, think about those things. How would you apply that advice to uh, yourself sort of in your, in the early, in your, well, in your, in your earlier days in the sector, would you have done something differently? Do you feel like you equipped yourself sort of well in retrospect to? You asked me when I look back, um, you know, my behave, my own behaviour and how I've yeah. seen things. I, I haven't been a typical HR. I have been very driven. And, of course, when you look back, you think, maybe I should listen more. Um, you know, maybe, maybe I should do that a bit more. But the one thing I did do that I was stick my head out um, at the parapet. And I did get questioned a few times. And I just had a louder voice. And, I, you know, something was inside of me. And I'm like, no, no, that's not right. And um, 90% of the time I used to do that. And mm. I'd say 10% of the 
90% of the time, it didn't go necessarily how I wanted it to go. (laughs) But 10% of the time it did. And I think sometimes I look back and think, actually, those were key moments. And and, and as you know, failure is massive uh, in everyone's life. And you only get those bits every now and again. And I I used to regret being that 90% sometimes because some of the reactions. But now I think, nah. I'm mm. glad I did it because that 10% worked. Mm. So my advice to anyone would be, do stick your head out. Maybe listen a bit more than I did, but uh, <laughs> stick your head out <laughs> and go for it um, because that's how, how change happens. So, yeah. Listen to listen to whom? If you're listening more, who, are you, who should you have listened to? Well, everyone in the room, basically. Mm. <laughs> No, I think everyone should have a voice. I think one of my mantras is this diversity of voice. Um, I, I can't emphasize enough how you learn from other people. You know, and it's only when you're a bit older and more mature you get taken more seriously anyway. Mm. <laughs> so I'm taking advantage of that. <laughs> but <laughs> Some of us are still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> Someday. But, um, but, and I'm not saying I get it right every time by any means, but sure. I think... I think I'm not afraid like I was yeah. perhaps before. So my advice would be to definitely go for it, you mm. know, and especially if you're in the humanitarian sector, I think there's much more opportunity to be pioneering, to be a little bit more adventurous, to to say something because it's, you know, you're seeing extreme things happen mm. in extreme places. It takes an extreme idea mm. maybe sometimes to sort that out. So as one of my colleagues said to me years ago, you know, here's my wacky idea, 236. And I thought he's being, you know, facetious, but he's saying, you know, I know I've got loads of wacky ideas, but here's my next one. <laughs> and I take that on board, you know, and I think you know, that's, a, that's a good way of looking at it. Have fun as well. So, Any, any regrets? No. None. No, no. I mean, obviously, I'm watching a That's lot. Terrific. Of, no, no, no. No highs and lows. Massive highs, massive lows sure. in every way. But um, coming back to your very first question, mm. it's so nice to talk about it with other people. Sometimes, not necessarily about me, but just about the work the sector does, mm. and to perhaps demystify why mm. the sector does what it does. But um, no, I'm, of course, I'm not. You know. I could have earned more money working in the industry. I could have continued working for myself in sure. business. Don't I'm not, you know, we don't have loads of money in our sector, and that's fine. And I'm really happy with that. Um, no, I'd have no regrets. I just think the, the people I've met and the communities I've worked with and the experiences I've had make me smile. So more than make me cry, if that makes sense. So. <laughs> listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.